Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here's a joke for you. Why do hummingbirds hum? I don't know. Because they don't know the words. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from writer and bird specialist Noah Stricker. Of course. That'll help break the ice. We'll speak with him later about his new book. Plus, filmmaker Wes Anderson tells us about his new movie, and we hear what he sounds like when he gets super mad. Well, I think that's quite rude. Jeez, such language. Yeah, also coming up, comic writer Dave Barry tells us how he avoids taxes. Novelist Helen Oyoyemi talks about the mirror, mirror on the wall. The white hot band Real Estate DJs your dinner party, plus the surprising history of camels in America. We're not talking cigarettes, folks. No way. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Techies, indie musicians, and movie people have the annual South by Southwest Festival now underway. A new campaign encouraging women to lead aims to get people to stop using the word bossy. Where is Malaysian Airlines Flight 370? Now for something you haven't heard, we are joined by Erin McCann. She is an assistant news editor for The Guardian newspaper. Erin, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I am going to be talking about cheese. Hmm. All right. That's a great topic to talk about at any time. That's right. Cheese and international warfare, actually. What? The long and short of it is the European Union wants to take away your cheese. Who moved my cheese? I was I've been asking that and it turns Belgium out Belgium moved your cheese. Turns out it was Europeans. Explain yes. please. This is uh part of some ongoing trade talks between the EU and and American congressmen. Uh the European Union wants to ban the use of European names in American cheeses. So they want if you buy parmesan, they want it to only be cheese made from Parma, Italy. So if Parmesan's made in America, we can't call it Parmesan? That's what they would like to have happen, yes. Wow. The, the argument in favor of it is that it is a centuries-old process to produce this specific kind of cheese that is from this specific kind of place. But I saw this article. They want to take away the word feta, but feta isn't a place in Greece. It's not. Yeah. Their, their argument falls apart. Okay. A little bit. All right. Because two can play at this game because <laughs> we could ban baked Alaska. Yeah. We could ban California rolls. Like if they want to go down this path, we could ban not, American cheese. Do they have to say oil-based milk slab now? Yeah, they, exactly. they basically pretend that American cheese doesn't exist. Get over yourself. I think one of the best parts about this story, though, was that the both the Associated Press and Reuters got to break out the cheese puns. <laughs> so uh, Associated Press called it a ripening trade battle. Nice. Reuters said that U.S. lawmakers wheeled into action against what they call the absurd plan. Oh my God. My absolute favorite quote was New York Senate. Chuck Schumer, who said, Munster is Munster, no matter how you slice it. Oh, nice. He waxed poetic. Oh. I think all those puns are incredibly... <laughs> Amazing. Cheesy. Oh. My word. Yeah. Aaron McCann, thanks so much for the small talk. Thank you. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you a true tale from history, then have a bartender represent it in the form of a tasty beverage. It's our increasingly renowned history lesson with booze. First, the history part right around this time back in 1855, Congress funded one of the more unusual government programs ever. Michelle Philippi tells the story. Before the Pony Express, there was the United States Camel Corps. The story begins in the 1830s, the USA was expanding west and needed a way to haul people and packages long distances through its new desert land. So an army officer from Georgia did some research 
and proposed a big idea. Import the perfect desert pack animal, camels. Two private camel companies sprung up and failed before they actually got any camels. But meanwhile, politician Jefferson Davis had become a big believer in the camel concept. And when he was named America's Secretary of Defense in the 1850s, he made the dream a reality. The U.S. Army shipped over camels and dromedaries from Mongolia, Egypt, and other exotic lands. Along with them came camel handlers from Syria and Turkey. Soon hundreds, maybe over a thousand, army camels were transporting soldiers, goods, and mail across the West. The results? Mixed. On the upside, camels could haul hundreds of pounds each and rarely had to rest. But they were also super mean and tended to freak out horses. Of course, pro-camel folks said that was a bonus because the camels would deter Native Americans from attacking on horseback. In any case, sometime during the Civil War, the Camel Corps dissolved. Some of the animals ended up in circuses, others as meat, and a few were just set free. As late as the 1940s, you could still spot the occasional camel wandering around the Southwest. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. We are on the line with a bar called The Esquire in San Antonio, Texas. San Antonio is where some Camel Corps camels were based. And we're speaking to the bar manager, Houston Eves. And Houston, first of all, have you ever considered moving from San Antonio to Houston? I have visited Houston, but I have not made it as one of my final destination points yet. It would make it a very symmetrical mailing address for you. It would make it a little confusing, probably, for the postman. <laughs> all right, you, you heard the history. What cocktail does that inspire you to make? Um, the Davis's Dromedary, kind of named for the Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis. You sort of got the whole ball, camel ball rolling, if there is such a term. Got it humping. What, uh, what's in this thing? Well, I went with a spirit that's kind of from around these parts. I don't know how defined the boundaries were at that point, but this one's from uh, Chihuahua, Mexico. It's uh, Ocho Cientos Sotol, native Mexican spirit. Is that like a tequila? or Similar. It's uh, made kind of in a similar way to they make like Oaxacan mezcals. But it's definitely got a character of its own and is delicious stuff. All right. Something unusual, just like camels in the United States. And what's up next? Um, and then it's uh, a little bit of pomegranate and hibiscus syrup that we make, some lime juice, and soda. Just because it's delicious, or just do pomegranates have something to do with uh, your area? Well, I was thinking of the uh, camel tenders potentially bringing some of their Middle Eastern flavors oh, to the party. Right. Pomegranate, I think of as a Middle Eastern flavor and is delicious in cocktails. Uh, and how do you finish it off? How do you assemble this stuff? So shake the Sotol, the syrup, and the lime juice all in a shaker, strain it into a Collins glass, and uh, top it with some mineral water. That sounds delicious. I was hoping that you would say you would serve it in a camel pack, those backpacks that you fill with water. That sounds like a good way to spend an afternoon. <laughs> and Brendan, just to answer a common question, camels have okay. two humps. Uh-huh. And that drink, of course, is named after the dromedary, which has just the one hump. All right. right. So maybe a subtle hint to drink it in moderation. That's right. Just have one dromedary. <laughs> Especially if you're in the desert. Yeah. Because it won't hydrate you. No. It'll just pass <laughs> right out. All right, people. We have plenty more drink recipes on our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org.
So we've made small talk, had a drink, now it's time for some music. And here to provide us with the dinner party soundtrack are the band Real Estate. Their easygoing guitar tunes have become the backdrop of many a party since they formed in New Jersey in 2008. Their new album Atlas just came out to rave reviews. Here they are with some song suggestions. Hi, I'm Martin. This is Matt. And this is Alex, and uh, we're in the band Real Estate. If I were hosting a dinner party, I would probably play If This Is It by Huey Lewis and the News. Yeah, I love the production on that record. It's, it's really, really good, clean, like, 80s radio rock. I think it's, like, one of the best times for a top 40 popular music, you know. Big melodies right there. Yeah, just, like, super melodic. We, we all love, like, a good pop song. Dinner parties sort of remind me of my parents uh, and, and in a really good way. Glasses of wine nice rug or something, people dancing to Huey Lewis, something from my childhood <laughs> that I, I sort of remember observing like my own parents doing, so I guess that's dinner party gold standard. Uh, you want to go Matt or I'll Sure, go. I'll, I can go. Um, I was going to choose Scotch, the group Scotch, the song Take Me Up. Scotch were a Italo disco group from the 80s in Italy, and uh, I think this is their best song. Disco is disco made by Italian people in Italy with singers that didn't really know what they were doing, so they would only put out like singles. And it's a little bit low budget sounding sometimes. But it's great. They're really great songs. Some of them are really, really great and uplifting. There's a lot of bad Italo disco. In kind of like broken English a little bit. Yeah, sometimes. so the English wouldn't translate very well. But uh, the components that are good, I guess, are just the simplicity of it and how it seems pretty effortless. Synthesizer and drum machine, four on the floor it's dance dancing, music. Yeah. I would pair this with Italian food. I'm Italian a little bit. Got a little bit of that inside of me, so is Martin. <laughs> Not me. I'm Jewish, so we'd be eating uh, liver and, and, and kugel. But uh, still be listening to the song. Oh, maybe. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the Jews and the Italians, they've always been sort of uh, comparable culturally and culinarily. I think probably more in the Huey Lewis big chill vein, I would go with Steely Dan Deacon Blues. That seems just like nice. really classic dinner party style. This is the day of the expanding man. Similar to the Huey Lewis thing, they they strike me as like mellow guys that happen to be like incredibly talented musicians, but they're just dudes that hang out. It seems like only yesterday I gazed through the glass. In my mind, Steely Dan should be regarded every bit as highly as like the Beatles are. You know, yeah, they've like reached some sort of pinnacle of. They of set a standard music. for uh, like recorded sound. The drum sound is that's just like the ideal drum sound. That really tight, close mic'd sound it works really well for us. This one's for real. I already bought the dream. 
I've definitely played this song at dinner parties that my wife and I have hosted. Martin's dinner parties are, you know, the pinnacle of, of dinner parties. The food's always really My good. wife is a really good cook. Ten. Uh, this is just me. We haven't conferred about this, but I think the bend fits most stylistically with all the other songs that we've talked about. And it's that was most the, like definitely that was the party first one vibe. that came to mind. Yeah, it's me kind too. of like uh, loungy. And it's just got the it's the groove. It's got that drum machine. It's the first time we've ever used drum machine on a song. It's got the bend, the the titular guitar bend, which is pretty groovy. I hope that we inspire people to go home and, and call their friends and throw a dinner party and put on our record. Yep, do it tonight. Dinner Party soundtrack courtesy of Martin Courtney, Matt Mondanile, and Alex Bleeker of the band Real Estate. Mm. They're on tour now to support their brand new album, Atlas. All right. And while we reconsider the artistry of Huey Lewis, oh, yeah. stick around, people, because in a minute we will chat with director Wes Anderson, plus Dave Barry is here with a message. Come and get me, IRS. Note he is not affiliated with this show. Nope. That and more when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, comic author Dave Barry answers your etiquette questions. And in a few minutes, acclaimed author Helen Oyoyemi reads from her new novel. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. And this week is director Wes Anderson. He's been nominated for two Academy Awards. He's loved for his unique visual and narrative style, where he creates detailed alternate universes and fills them with these almost farcical stories, yeah. often with a bittersweet edge. His latest film is no exception. It's called The Grand Budapest Hotel, and it's a caper that's centered around Gustav H., a beloved concierge at a 1930s European hotel. When we spoke, I started by asking Anderson what aspect of the film he's proudest of. Well, you know, you've just hit a nerve. Because okay. um, I just had this conversation yesterday with a friend where I said, I don't believe in pride. Uh, mm. And I'm not sure if it's really true, but I'm trying to make this case that I feel like pride is a sort of a negative quality. But I, I, I guess maybe to be proud of other people is a, is a good thing. I, I don't That's know. That's fair. I love our cast. Pride is a sin, so maybe it was bad of me to ask that question off the bat. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know. I'm just trying this out. Let me ask you something maybe this way. Uh, there's a distinct Wes Anderson style, beautifully rendered sets, attention to detail, certain camera movements. What is your favorite Wes Anderson move? Like what, what gives you delight every time you do it in one of your films? Every time I'm making a movie, I think I'm doing something totally different from anything I've ever done before, and I'm I'm back to square one, and I want to try to make a new experience for everybody. And it's um, mm-hmm. and then when the movie's done, a lot of people say, you know, it, you know, what it reminds me a lot of is everything else you've ever done. <laughs> I'm not really thinking about that when I'm making a movie. I don't want to do anything to make it like what I've done before. Sometimes sure. I might be aware I am now going to use a technique that I have used a number of times, but I'm only doing that because I can't think of a better way to do it. You said that part of the inspiration for the movie uh, and part of the inspiration for Gustav H., played by Ray Fiennes, was a friend of yours, a guy who is kind of dapper, fastidious, and he carries himself in an old world way. When I think about that, that's how a lot of people think of you. And I'm wondering if 
you see yourself at all in Gustav H. No, I see this. I see our friend. I mean, he's the sort of person who was fully formed when he was 16 years old, I bet. And if we had a conversation, mm. he, now he's in his mid-50s. If we kind of had a conversation with him at age 16, it would probably be very similar. Uh-huh. He's somebody who's very knowledgeable about the things he's interested in, which is a very wide range of things. And he sort of assumes the role of mentor. Most people, when they enter into conversation with him, quickly become a protege. I'm Zero, sir. The new lobby boy. Zero, you say? Yes, sir. Well, I've never heard of you. Never laid eyes on you. Who hired you? Mr. Mosher, sir. Mr. Mosher? Yes, Monsieur Gustav. Am I to understand you've surreptitiously hired this young man in the position of a lobby boy? He's been engaged for a trial period, pending your approval, of course. Uh, perhaps, yes. Thank you, Mr. Mosher. You're most welcome, Monsieur Gustav. You're now going to be officially interviewed. Should I go and light the candle first, sir? What? No. The name of the film comes from the hotel, the the fictional Grand Budapest Hotel, which is based on those grand old European hotels and spa resorts from the late 19th century. And you also show the hotel later after communism uh, or in the 60s, and it's drab and utilitarian. And, And it seems to me that could be a metaphor for how you approach movies. You know, do you see your stuff as the former hotel and maybe more naturalistic films as the latter? I don't because, you know, I I, th- I think, you know, the movies I make, they tend to have some sort of fantasy uh, to them. Mm-hmm. You know, there's somehow some world where the story, the context of the story and the, the, the world that the characters live in, I like to do a thing where we get to sort of invent that. Yeah. But somebody who makes a movie where they're trying to, where they do want it to be like the reality outside of snow, or the reality that we would discover in whatever place it is, well, they have to use all the techniques in the, at their disposal to do that. It's not like yeah. they can just make it real. And I'm absolutely equally interested in movies like that. And I think there's no point that you cross between them at all. There's just gradations. When I'm doing a movie, however maybe exaggerated or, or peculiar the, the scene or the dialogue may be that these people are meant to play, yeah. I just want them to make the real version of that. I want them to make the most authentic kind of the documentary version of this thing, that, of this imaginary scene. All right. We have two standard questions that we ask all of our guests. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? I don't really like if somebody says... Some people say this negative thing, or this. Some mm-hmm. people say this bad thing about you. How do you react to that? You're like, well, I think that's quite rude to say. To <laughs> you know, I mean, if you know that that's not a nice thing to say, and you want to say, well, then I don't. I, I you wouldn't say that in a real conversation with somebody. You know, I'd say, sure. oh well, now I guess I'll defend. I, either I defend myself, or I say, well, I won't defend myself. That's the only thing I don't. That is, it, there's no pleasure in it. All right. The second thing we ask each of our guests is tell us something we don't know, something you haven't talked about in interviews before, and this could be a personal fact or a piece of trivia. Well, you know, one day someone will say, can you tell us the boringest thing anyone ever said when you <laughs> asked them this question? This could be it, but it's what just sprung to mind. We spent all this time traveling around in Eastern Europe, in Central Europe anyway, and um we often w- went to locations that were abandoned buildings, old, you know, beautiful old buildings, Viennese or whatever it is kind of places, Belle Epoque kind of architecture that we could maybe do something in. We might adapt this building for our set. 
And often when we would go into these buildings in that part of the world that, what had, that had been behind the Iron Curtain, you would see the communist layer of architecture. It would have been partitioned and the ceilings are lowered and these, you know, practically cardboard walls with orange and yellow flowered wallpaper and weird uh, linoleum. And the one thing that always struck me in these places, always in the corner of these ruined rooms, there were these ceramic wood-burning stoves that go from the floor to the ceiling and they're very intricate they have wonderful detail, and they have been there since the beginning because they're so heavy um, that they can't be stolen. Huh. And, you know, I would always say, let's use this, let's take this stove and put it in the movie. They say, we can't, we have to just make it scenically <laughs> um, because you just can't move these. But somehow these stoves stand in the corner like some sort of witness. Can't remember, did you incorporate stoves like that in the final film? We've got them all over the place, but unfortunately ours are made of uh, essentially, you know, paper mache, huh. but they look more or less real. Even an art direction obsessed Hollywood director like you was unable to dislodge these witnesses to history. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Even even with my own resources, but you know, if Chris Nolan wanted one, I bet they would give it give it to him. I, I'm, yeah, I'm operating on a different budget level. Enrico, it's true. Wes couldn't get those stoves in the movie. It's too bad. But he told me that he did cast people that he encountered during his travels around Eastern Europe. Right, like Bill Murray. <laughs> <laughs> For instance. That he is in the movie, but I think he encountered him in Santa Monica. Oh, okay. Even it's west of the Czech Republic. That's right. <laughs> if Bill's there, it's exotic. Uh, people, just a reminder, you can always encounter us at our website. It is dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. Writer Helen Oyoyemi is on Granta Magazine's list of the best young British novelists. At age 29, she's just published her fifth book, Boy Snow Bird. Today we overhear her read an excerpt. Hello, I'm Helen Oyemi. Um, my new book is called Boy Snow Bird, a retelling of Snow White set in 1950s and 1960s Massachusetts. The book is told from the perspective of a boy who is a woman who ends up becoming the wicked stepmother figure in this story, much to her surprise. Here she is in her own words. Nobody ever warned me about mirrors, so for many years I was fond of them and believed them to be trustworthy. I'd hide myself away inside them, setting two mirrors up to face each other so that when I stood between them I was infinitely reflected in either direction. Many, many me's. The effect was dizzying, a vast pulse, not quite alive, more like the working of an automaton. Mirrors showed me that I was a girl with a white blonde pigtail, still near black eyes, and one of those faces some people call harsh and others call fine-boned. As for character, mine developed without haste or fuss. I didn't interfere. It was all there in the mirrors. Suppose you're born in the Lower East Side of Manhattan in the year 1930-something. Suppose your father's a rat catcher. Your absent mother is never discussed, to the extent that you nurse a theory that you're a case of spontaneous generation. Your father is an old-fashioned man. He kills rats the way his grandfather taught him. This means that there are little cages in the basement. Each cage contains a rat lying down and making a sound somewhere between twittering and chattering. Cluck, cluck, cluck. 
They make these sounds and then you see holes in their paws and in their sides. There's nothing else in that cage with them and all your father does to them at first is give them water. So it stands to reason that it's the rats making the holes, eating themselves. Rats that are blind and starving are the best at bringing death to all the other rats. That's your father's claim. I guess he makes a lot of money. He does business with factories and warehouses. They like him because he's very conscientious about the cleanup afterward. So that's Papa. Cleanest hands you'll ever see in your life. He'll punch you in the kidneys from behind and walk away sniggering while you crawl around on the floor, stunned. He does the same to his lady friend who lives with you. One day she leaves a note under your pillow. It says, look, I'm sorry. For what it's worth, I'd say you deserve better. Take care of yourself. You're all of 15 and you're a jumpy kid. You don't return people's smiles. It's perfectly clear to you that people can smile and smile and still be villains. One of the first things you remember is resting your head against the sink. You were just washing your hair in it and that clean hand descends out of nowhere and holds you face down in the water until you faint. You come around lying on the bathroom floor. There's a burning feeling in your lungs that flares up higher the harder you cough and the rat catcher's long gone. He's at work. Where does character come into it? Just this. I've always been pretty sure I could kill someone if I had to. Myself or my father. Whichever option proved most practical. That kind of bottom line is either in your character or it isn't. It develops early. My reflection in the mirror would give me a slow nod from time to time, but would never say what she was thinking. There was no need. Author Helen Oyoyemi, reading from her new novel, Boy, Snow, Bird. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, the food. So, Brendan, I've lived in L.A. a long time. I love it. But we do tend to get really into, let's call them extreme diets. Yeah. Right? All meat diets, liquid cleanses are a big The deal. city that demonizes bread. That's us. But this week came the topper, the ice cream cleanse. All right. You mentioned this earlier in the week. Is this a joke? This is for real. <laughs> it is the brainchild <laughs> of a shop called Kippy's in Venice, California. The cleanse involves Man. eating nothing but their coconut milk-based ice cream for four days. Convenient. <laughs> One of the few people to actually dare to try this thing is a fitness writer named Brent Rose. He wrote about the experience this week in Gizmodo, and he came to our studio to talk about it. The way it's laid out is you have five meals a day, and each meal is a pint of ice cream. So you start off with a breakfast pint of ice cream. A whole pint? A whole pint. Now, you don't have to finish it. I pretty much finished all of them. Really? Yeah, surprisingly Is enough. that because you're a glutton? I don't know. At first, it was because I was so worried that I would be hungry later. But you you never find yourself starving during this diet. You're getting plenty of calories. I used to joke back in the, the low-carb diet days that I wanted to create it a diet that was all lipids and carbs and just call it the Fatkins diet. And that's essentially what this is. This is the Fatkins diet. There's almost no protein. It's like all fat and all carbohydrates. You're living the dream. Yeah, or something. So you were very kind to bring into our studios some of the ice cream that you ate 
incessantly for four days. Yes. And they're labeled, one is labeled Master Cleanse number four, mm-hmm. and one is labeled Superfood number five. I like, I've never seen Superfood ascribed to ice cream before. Right. And the four and five indicated this is the fourth and fifth meal you'd be eating during the day. So you had different ice creams at different points of the day. Right. All right. So this would be number four. So this would be towards the end of the day. Uh, yeah. Hold on. I'm going to take a bite of this. Hmm. It's almost like a sorbet. Yeah. So I think this one uses more coconut water than coconut cream. So this one's probably got a little bit less fat. Yeah. My first instinct is to now say, I can almost get this because it's not like you're eating Baskin Robbins four times a day. You weren't getting Rocky Road. But at the same time, like if you look at the saturated fat ratio of (laughs) coconut milk, it's like higher than butter, you know? Well, this is a question that I had for you. I mean, what were your trepidations going into this for four days eating nothing but basically saturated fat? I guess my biggest concern was that my heart would just explode <laughs> That's after like day one. two. Each day you're eating about 180 grams of fat. Mm. 160 are saturated fat. Now, what, what would be the typical the, or the recommended? I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I know that that is 820% of your recommended <laughs> daily intake of saturated fat. Well, now you have you know relatives who are medical folk. Mm-hmm. You actually consulted with a former Harvard Medical Center person who's now at Kaiser Permanente. Did they really give you the okay to do this? It seems a deeply unhealthy thing to try. Well, my brother really didn't want me to do it. Um, but my friend who, who was from uh, Harvard and the CDC, she was a little bit more measured. She's like, you know, you probably won't die doing this. Um, And she went on to explain that although it is saturated fat, coconut oil has been shown to actually raise your levels of HDL cholesterol, which is the good cholesterol, and lower your levels of LDL cholesterol, which is the bad cholesterol. So theoretically, Mm. it might help unclog some of your arteries and sweep cholesterol buildup away that you've got in there. But at the same time, is too much of a good thing a really, really bad thing? (laughs) And it almost always is, right? I have a friend who is a, a lab technician who said, if you give enough of anything to a rat, it will develop cancer. Right. <laughs> but on the other hand, I mean, it turns out that it wasn't, it doesn't sound like it was a horrible experience. No, that was a surprise because my girlfriend and I had done a juice cleanse once before and it was just miserable, you know, like splitting headaches, low energy, giant emotional mood swings. <laughs> like it was just that. We were still together. We, we made it through that somehow. <laughs> But this didn't have any of that. We had plenty of energy the whole time. We both were exercising regularly throughout it, which is very rare for a cleanse. Mm-hmm. There were some indigestion issues. Yeah, gastrointestinal. Um, exactly. That plagued plagued <laughs> us pretty much the entire time. Um, and really oh, for about a week afterwards before we got back to normal. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, so... That was a drawback. Well, this, I mean, this kind of brings up a larger issue. Should we be doing cleanses, period? I mean, this one, it sounds like wins because it was not miserable. Right. Personally, I don't really think so. I'm I'm not a big believer in cleanses. I think if you really did do something bad and consume something very bad to yours, you know, heavy metals or something horrible, there is some evidence that maybe cleanses could help you in that capacity. But all the stuff about like weight loss and how it detoxifies your body is, you know, it's iffy science. And the weight loss, uh, my girlfriend and I both lost about six pounds during this week, but we gained it all back immediately. Mm -hmm. And I think it wasn't that we were losing fat during this because we were consuming, you know, more than 3000 calories a day. (laughs) But what what probably happens is that level, that amount of saturated fat acts as a diuretic. And so it was actually dehydrating our cells. I see. No matter how much water we were, you know, drinking, we were drinking tons. But on the other hand, this has not put you off of 
ice cream is my understanding. That's correct. It didn't even put us off of Kippy's coconut ice cream. You know, about a week later, we were both kind of like, oh, what do you kind of feel like? Oh, I could go for some ice cream. That wouldn't be so bad. How's that possible? You know, it's really good ice cream <laughs> at a normal dose. Brendan, a couple more details from Brent's ice cream cleanse. I don't know if I want them. He started (laughs) craving pretzels halfway through. He said he missed chewing. That's a quote. And also his girlfriend started craving seaweed salad for some reason. (laughs) I'm pretty sure Ben and Jerry's makes pretzel and seaweed salad ice cream. So (laughs) If only he had known. (laughs) Yeah. The poor guy. Okay, folks, we're going to take a break. But in a few minutes, humorist Dave Barry answers your etiquette questions. This is the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a brand new tune from Mac DeMarco. And coming up, we learn what albatrosses can teach us about love. And we don't mean a metaphor for something that won't stop bothering you. That's right. But if something is bothering you, you came to the right place, everybody, because it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is Pulitzer Prize-winning humorist Dave Barry. For 22 years, he was a nationally syndicated columnist for the Miami Herald. He's written nearly 40 books, including the recent bestsellers Insane City, I'm Mature When I'm Dead, and Dave Barry's History of the Millennium, so far. And he is the father of a daughter, which explains the title of his latest book, You Can Date Boys When You're 40, Dave Barry on Parenting and Other Topics He Knows Very Little About. And Dave, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Hi. Uh, The subtitle of your book demands the question, are you writing about things you don't know about because after dozens of books, you're out of topics you know about? Like you've already written everything else? I just don't write. I don't know anything about anything. That's why I'm an English major and a journalist. And so our skill is not knowing that much about anything. (laughs) That's true. Writing about them anyway. (laughs) So you've been saving the subtitle. It could have been on any of your previous 38 books. I wanted to call this book Dave Barry, I bet you thought he was dead. But they <laughs> they turned they wanted more something. Dave, was, you put out a book every five minutes. I don't think anybody <laughs> has thought that you've departed us. Well, well that, that was at least the other title I proposed, which was Dave Barry, a Dave Barry book by Dave Barry. <laughs> which is like, kind of like the branding thing going yeah, on. Yeah, like But they wanted a theme, so like there are a couple of things in there about being a dad, and so they decided to pretend it was a parenting. So now I have to explain to all these parenting columnists who want to interview me that no it's, it's really not about parenting and, yeah. and when I say I don't knowing about it I'm quite serious well we should say though I mean in the book you do things like you do go to a Justin Bieber concert with your daughter I did and um, it was a, a terrifying thing the, and the thing here's the thing it was like a tremendous sacrifice it cost a lot of money to go to room there's 17,000 people and there were like eight of them were dads there are eight of us you can see the holes in the crowd where the dads are sitting down twiddling on their phones yeah. and, and, and there's 17,000 girls and they're, they're very loud they're like yeah, you probably went deaf. I'm oh, it was like, I love you. They all, they're all like crying that they love. And the, the loudest single moment came when Justin Bieber took off his shirt. Mm. And here's <laughs> the thing. It would be one thing if, if the guy was, he has the same exact body as the Geico gecko. I'm, I am not, I'm not kidding. It's like this pasty he's, Canadian he's, he's person. He's not a very developed kid. No, yeah, no. Yeah. He need, and the other thing about it, I don't want to sound like an old fart, but I am an old fart and I will sound like one here. Okay, go. In the day, when I used to go, when music was music, you went to see like a band and the band stayed in one place. If you went to see the Rolling Stones, 
First of all, they were attached to their amplifiers back then. <laughs> yeah. Second of all, they were those rolling stones that were stoned. Whatever they could, yeah. they stayed still. They stood in one place. You knew where the band was at all times. <laughs> Even when you went to see like Gladys Knight and the Pips, you know, mm-hmm. the Pips would move, but it was like a fairly like a limited range. The yeah, Pips, sure. Pips had a, maybe a five yard range to either direction. <laughs> now, I don't know the exact numbers we could look at. So up. Justin yeah, was Pip wide roaming, is what you're saying? Like a track meet. It's like he gets out there with he's got like his twelve hot body backup dancers, and if they come down on wires and they run up on what and like they're Cirque sprinting all over the place and it just makes these girls scream more and you want to say but the music's not that good yeah. you know mm-hmm. that's what you want to say but you can't because they, they first of all they would kill you and they can't hear you and they can't hear you anyway so <laughs> so it's more spectacle what was the question the again yes i did i went to a just and you know here's the hell of it my daughter was 13 we, when she was in love with justin bieber and went, went to all this trouble to go now she hates him she thinks he's a jerk <laughs> She's yeah. over him? She's over him. She loves One Direction. Wasted time. <laughs> All right. Well, since you've done such a fine job advising people about stuff. Oh, this is a scary part of the show where I, where you ask adequate. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is the real reason oh, yeah. for the show. This is real it? stuff you okay. don't know about. Yeah. You ready for these? <laughs> yeah. Here's something from Bob in Chicago. Bob writes, I've been a writer for ages, but when I tell people what I do, I still get the seriously look in some crowds. Do you have any choice responses? So, like, they're not taking him seriously, or yeah. they think that's not a real job. Uh, yes. I think the fact that Bob is so insecure means he is a writer, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what he means. To be honest, like, I'm a writer, but I don't get that, usually get that reaction from yeah. people. Yeah, but you're Dave Barry, Dave Barry. Yeah, the buyer, the action I get is you actually, you actually get paid to do that. You know, they don't <laughs> deny that I do. Yeah. They just find that part of it surprising. Like I can't believe yeah. it. <laughs> What's wrong with this world we live in? Exactly. They're like, I'm doing a useful skill. I'm teaching children or something. You and went to a Bieber concert yeah, exactly. and I'm curing cancer. And I wrote about it. And I Gonna claim, I'm going to claim it on my income taxes. I'm going to claim everything. <laughs> That's why you wrote this book. I, I just, when you're a human writer, life itself is tax deductible. You don't have to pay taxes on anything. Man. Come and get me, IRS. We're in the wrong gig. All right. Yeah. Well, Bob, if you're not already a humor writer, there's a reason to become one. Yeah. So our next question comes from Jennifer in Los Angeles. Jennifer writes, I love where I live with the exception of its terrible sound insulation. Mm. My 87-year-old upstairs neighbor, a self-proclaimed night owl, usually goes to bed around 3 a.m. I am woken up every night by her wood-soled shoes, every step sounding like thunder. I feel like I've waited too long to confront her, and as much as I'd like to, can't gift her slippers and expect this to solve the problem. How do I confront her? God, I feel for her. I do, too, because we've all been in that situation where you have an upstairs, you know, Yeah, loud neighbor. Um, okay, now this, I don't know if this is totally legal in, in California. Probably. But does she have a firearm? Oh, no. <laughs> she doesn't No, say I it. don't. I'm not for a second suggesting to shoot the neighbor. Okay. That would be wrong. Yeah, okay, because you and are from Florida. I am from Florida, and that is how we would handle it there. <laughs> but let's just say it accidentally discharged through the ceiling. Okay. No, you make sure, because you, you know where she is. You got the loud shoes. Yeah, she, yeah. You so don't want to hit her. A bullet comes through her floor and up through her ceiling. <laughs> And she comes down. She would then confront you. Yeah. The situation now reverses and say, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. You know what happens? I'm cleaning my gun, and I get startled sometimes by this loud clomping, uh-huh. this loud clomping noise from overhead. Uh-huh. It twitches my fingers at 3 o'clock in the morning. I wish I knew from whence it emanated. Yeah. yeah. Or is there some way that, you know, it's the last thing I want to do. Let's say her neighbor's name is Gladys. Gladys, the last thing I want to do is shoot you. Is there some way? It's can... win-win if you put on these slippers, which I happen to have in your size right here with yeah. me now, next to my gun. <laughs> wow. You've got, you've really thought this out, Dave. That one, I, yeah. All right. Well, somewhere in there, Jennifer was. Yeah, I think we got Jennifer straightened out. Oh, totally. She knows just what to do. Here's something from Leanne via our website. We don't know where she's from. So Leanne says, what do you do when it's painfully obvious a parent has completed their child's art or science class project? (laughs) This is not standard parental guidance we're talking. I'm saying the parent is embroidering, hot gluing, etc. Is it petty 
to bring this up to the teacher or should I just bolster my own kid and explain this is the way the world works sometimes? Mm. Okay. First of all, I totally relate to this as a parent of a child. The science fair, their competing children are coming in with working cold fusion reactors. Yes. You know, you know like, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I really do think this is a situation to where you work with the parents because at the end of the year, yeah. They have a big assembly and award, and I think they should at some point, you know, like the teacher, the science teachers get, and the top prize for science this year goes to Bobby Tomlinson's mom for her incredible <laughs> well you know, done. wave theory. Well done, Mrs. Tomlinson. <laughs> he couldn't have done it without you. In fact, we didn't need him at all to do it. That would be nice. Know? Or you so, could have two categories. What if you split kind of like the sound editing and sound mixing categories? You have <laughs> you have the kids that have been aided by their parents' award yeah. and the kids who just did it themselves. Exactly. Blue Ribbon Award for the one actually right. done by a child. That would actually be just wonderful. All right. Dave Barry, thank you for telling our audience how to behave. Hey, it's why I'm here. Dave Barry, his new book is called You Can Date Boys When You're 40. Dave Barry on parenting and other topics he knows very little about. And I want him to come out with a book entitled Fifty Shades of Dave. <laughs> it could just be his thoughts on relationships. Yeah, and it could launch a trilogy maybe. Totally. Or a lawsuit. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you've encountered an etiquette dilemma yourself that you know very little about, we would like to hear about it. Send us your query via our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we get schooled in a dinner party worthy topic. And today our subject is birds, and our expert is Noah Stricker. He is associate editor of Birding Magazine and a frequent contributor to other bird-related publications. He has spotted 2,500 birds on six continents. That's one-fifth of all the world species, and he's only 26. Noah, you are truly, as you say in the book, a bird nerd. Yes, that is how I, that is how I reply when people ask me what, my do, what I do. I say a full-time bird nerd. <laughs> Let me tell people about your new book. It's called uh, The Thing with Feathers, The Surprising Lives of Birds and What They Reveal About Being Human. And let's start with albatrosses. You think they can teach us about love. Why? Uh, scientists have studied divorce rates, if you want to call it that, in albatrosses as being as low as 0.1%. In other words, only 0.1% of albatross pairs will split up before one of them eventually dies. Uh, you look at human divorce rates around the world, by contrast, are around 40 to 45%. And that puts mm. us about the same romantic level as a seabird called the Nazca booby, <laughs> for what it's worth. Well, but maybe they're just codependent. How do we know that? How do we know that it's love? Well, I should note that that is social monogamy and not necessarily sexual monogamy. So there's oh. there's a few things going on on the side, okay. but they do stick together, and um, that may have something to do with the fact that albatrosses live a long time, just like we do. An albatross might live between fifty and a hundred years. Wow. We don't even really know because we haven't studied individual albatrosses that long yet, but we think so. And what I found remarkable, uh, you know, albatrosses spend much of their lives over open water alone, and then yet they come back every couple years and they meet their mate from or from decades and decades before, and they both know to meet each other. It's amazing. We still don't know how they do it because, yes, while they're not nesting, albatrosses spend their whole lives over the open ocean, and typical albatross will fly several million miles in its life. And that's like going from the Earth to the moon and back 10 or 12 times, <laughs> which is pretty crazy. I mean, that's farther than any, say, car that humans have ever built. 
and yeah, flying for albatrosses is just amazingly easy. They uh, they have this special tendon in their shoulder that locks their wing out like a switchblade, and so it pretty much is like sitting still for them. They're the scientists have tried to come up with how much energy it takes an albatross to fly, and they've come up with basically zero. All right, on from the albatross to the starling. And this is a bird that's one of the most plentiful in the United States. Many people consider it a nuisance. I was surprised to find out that starlings aren't native to North America. So the story goes that European starlings and another bird called a house sparrow, which is also very common in U.S. cities now and also widely hated, Hmm. were introduced originally because someone was trying to introduce all of the birds to North America that were mentioned in the collective works of Shakespeare. They wanted (laughs) to take all the birds they were familiar with from back home and add them to the North American avifauna. And (laughs) that that may or may not be true, but, but there definitely was this push about 100, 150 years ago to add birds from the old world to the new world because in those days they thought it would improve the bird yeah. life of North America. And of course, the complete now opposite. And, yeah. <laughs> see that it was a terrible idea. Most of the birds they brought over here didn't survive, but the ones that did sort of took over, kind of like starlings. And wasn't there this one New York pharmacist who was credited with bringing them over? There was this one guy who made it his mission to introduce starlings to New York City, and it took him several efforts. The first few lots just perished and died and froze to death, as they do yeah. in New York City. But finally, a few birds took hold and, and just ran with it. Well, speaking of popular birds, I, I was surprised when I was reading your book that there was a section on chickens because, you know, chickens are kind of usually ignored by the larger bird community. They're not considered as cool as wild birds. cool thing about chickens is actually the domestic chicken is the most abundant vertebrate in the world. There is no other species that has more (laughs) numbers than the domestic. There's about 24 billion domestic chickens on Earth. That's amazing. The thing is most of them don't live very long, just about six months or so on average. That number is so impressive, but then you think of, you know, chicken McNuggets and stuff, and you're like, well... You know, what does that get <laughs> That's right. My favorite story in the chicken chapter is the guy who invented contact lenses for chickens. This guy thought he was going to be the most rich and famous man on earth because he had <laughs> figured out, he thought, how to solve chicken bloodlust. Chickens go crazy over the color red. And this is, this is really true. It's not like bulls, which apparently can't really process the color red. And it's the movement of the matador's cape more than anything hmm. that drives them crazy. But chickens, it may be the color of blood or just some other random thing. But when they see red, they can sometimes just like flip a switch and go crazy and kill each other. This is probably why we use mayonnaise instead of ketchup when we eat them. (laughs) That's right. We don't want to awaken them. This guy thought that uh, he had seen a lot of farmers using red lights in their chicken coop because the theory went that if everything was bathed in this red glow, then chickens wouldn't be able to tell which things were red and which weren't. And so they wouldn't attack any you know, particular bird or anything like that. What he des- decided to do was to try to mess with the chicken's vision to make it so that the chickens themselves were seeing everything red. And so they wouldn't have to install these low lights in the chicken coops, which made it hard for the farmers to see what they were doing. He figured out a way to design red contact lenses for chickens. And you could put these in the bird's eyeballs and everything the bird saw would be red. So 
It didn't really work out in the end. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Imagine trying to hold down a chicken with a tiny little contact <laughs> lens on your finger and stabbing it into the bird's eye. Oh. That was the first problem. The farmers hated doing this. The second problem was, well, it turned out these contact lenses irritated the bird's eyeball so much that they were just anxious and mad all the time, and they ended up having more bloodlust in the end, not less. <laughs> you know, they could have used soy sauce as lens solution to kind of, you know, <laughs> pre-flavoring. <laughs> That's right, made it for a tastier bird in the end. Noah Stricker, his book is called The Thing with Feathers, The Surprising Lives of Birds and What They Reveal About Being Human. Enrico, bonus bird fact. All right. Magpies are one of the only other creatures on Earth who can recognize themselves in mirrors. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, does that mean they have body image issues then? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. They also take a lot of selfies. They... <laughs> <laughs> that explains their presence on Instagram. There you go. <laughs> and folks, that's the Dinner Party download for this week. Next week, our guest of honor will be none other than Steve Martin. Yes, do tune in for that. Till then, Jackson Musker is the associate producer of the Dinner Party download. Brittany Martin helps with digital stuff. Our interns are James Delahousie and Esther Mania. Engineering assistance came courtesy of Jeff Peters and Charlton Thorpe. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Canadian guitarist and songwriter Mac DeMarco has a new album due in April. It is appropriately titled Salad Days since he is 23 years old after <laughs> all. Here's a track from it called Brother. Bon Appetit. You know for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And now for... Oh no, somebody turn on the red light. Turn on the red light! <clears throat> Sorry. Forgot our contact lenses.